this is Mike Dilt with the Relax Back UK show on UK Health Radio, your global real feel-good radio station. On the Relax Back UK show we explore all kinds of health topics, so keep listening and enjoy the ride. And thank you for joining me, Mike Dilk, on the Relax Back UK show. Now, today's first topic is not a normal sort of story at all. It actually made me tear up. So every week we were basically in hospital dealing with that very severe medical emergency where he would be stopping breathing regularly. And that was very frightening as parents to deal with. You will be moved by Hannah Deacon's story of how her son suffered terribly from epilepsy. You'll be amazed and impressed at her grit and determination to find a solution and then in her ongoing battle to get that solution to as many as needed. I talked to her and a doctor that prescribes cannabis-based medicine. Then a slightly milder topic but still important, a healthier sort of Indian restaurant. It is definitely healthier because the fat content we're looking at is the oil that we're using and probably what you get from chicken or meat in itself. I love Indian food. My wife's family is from Mumbai and we eat a lot of it at home, but it's not always the healthiest. I chat with Sam, the owner of Char and Nasta, a restaurant in St Albans, about her business, running a restaurant in COVID times and how her food different from others. So please do stick around for a great show. Thank you. This show is cool. Yes, for the first piece are Dr. Sally Gazella. She's a pain consultant, a female health expert, and she prescribes medicines derived from cannabis. Also Hannah Deacon, she's the mum of Alfie, and Alfie has benefited greatly from medicines derived from cannabis to help with his epilepsy. So the topic is medicines derived from the cannabis plant, particularly in relation to treating, to treating children. But it comes with a bit of a warning. This piece will move you, but it might also, you might also end up being a little angry because some of these medicines that seem to do a lot of good are actually quite hard to get in the UK and it's hard to see why. Now, they are now legal. These medicines are now legal in the UK. And my first question was, how long has that been the case? So, um, medicine cannabis started legalized in, in, in the UK from 1st of November in 2018. And as a, as a medical doctor, so I finished medicine so, so many years ago. And I have to admit, while I was studying, we did I didn't know what is in a cannabinoid system. We have not been studied this uh, system. And it came to light in 19, the 90s when an Israeli uh, professor described the endocannabinoid uh, system in the body and the effect of the endocannabinoid system in sleep, memory, immune uh, system, pain, and this and that. And after legalization of the cannabis in 2018, it became coming now to light that it might be um, good for pain as a pain specialist and helping with sleep and in anxiety. So right. this is just... A so, so, so although these kind of medicines have been known about for a long, long time, the actual system that they work on hasn't really been studied very much. Is that is that a fair assumption? Yes. Okay, so it's all kind of new. Um, and have they been legal uh, these kind of medicines uh, in other countries for longer? 
I mean, for the states, yes, longer. And some every every country has its own uh, role of legalizing medicine. Some of them that just legalizing uh, CBD as a, as a, as a, as a food. Uh, uh, not as a medicine, some of them, they are legalizing CBD and THC, but in a to, to a upper limit of 1% of THC. So it depends on the country. Some of them, they, 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 they are not legalized at all. So it depends on the country. Okay. Yes. I'm just going to have to ask you, you mentioned a couple, a couple of, TH, you said TH, THCs and CBDs. What are they? Is they are the the component of the cannabinoids, uh, cannabis plant is the TSC and the and the and the CBD. Although we have two hundred cannabis uh, in the in the in the cannabis uh, uh, plant, but the most important is the CBD and the TSC. Okay, all right. So that they're just parts of the components of the of this uh, this plant. All right. So if 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 you're if you're suffering from well whatever it could be, the, what are the chances of going to a GP in the UK and uh, him thinking right exactly what this patient's need is a medicine derived from cannabis? I'm going to write a prescription now, uh, and uh, he can go and pick it up, and jobs are good. Yeah, at the moment, the GP cannot prescribe cannabis. It has to be a specialist in the a GMC special register. Uh, the GMC and the and once the initial prescription had been prescribed from the from the specialist uh, a, a pain consultant or psych or a, a neurologist or psychiatrist, the GP can continue prescribing as a shared uh, um, care of this patient. But okay. going to the GP to be prescribed is, is not yet. Okay, so it's not straightforward. And I I know we'll talk about that a little bit later with with Hannah because she's he's has had some. Uh, a hell of a ride, and I think is is the best way to describe it in that situation. But we'll come to that a bit later. But in general terms, what sort of issues can these medicines help with? Or is so, yeah, there are some some strong evidence that cannabis medicine cannabis can help. For example, in epilepsy, in like Elfie's case, in 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 um, in. Uh, um, nausea and vomiting in chemotherapy and uh, in pain. Some there are less strong evidence, like in 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 fibromyalgia, in uh, in, in sleep and anxiety, PTSD, Tourette's syndrome. So there are strong evidence that this cannabis medicine can help, and there is less strong evidence for okay, treatment. So, so quite quite a few different uh, diseases and issues and problems, but more has been found out all the time. It sounds yes. like that situation. All right. So take pain, for instance, because I've heard more about it being used for pain. How, how, what do they actually do? How do these medicines actually work, considering that I'm a layman? <laughs> so can you describe quickly how they actually work in a way that so, I might understand? As, a, as, a, as, a, as I said, so any cannabinoid system is a system that present where they are in the, in the, in the, in the, in the body and they have effect on, on, the, on the pain. Uh, they have two receptors, CP1 receptors and CP2 receptors, and they found in the outside the nervous system and the immune system. In the in the in the for the pain, they, they reduce the the pain pathway. I mean, the inhib inhibiting the pain pathway, so they they will reduce the pain perception in a way in the in the nervous system. Okay, so they they, they reduce the effect of the pain. So yes. it, 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 the classic thing is if you're you know, put your finger in a flame and it hurts. So you take your finger away. Um, yeah, take the finger. So the, the pain pathway is the ascending. In, I mean, there are pathways sending the, the pain perception to your brain. 
And after that, there is inhibition pathways, so you can, the pain will reduce. So this is the kind of, of, of effect on pain that reduce the inhibition of the, of the inhibition signals, increasing the inhibition signals of the, of the pain itself. Okay, all right. So can, because the problem with some pain medicines is that the body can get resistance over time. Can a yeah. similar thing happen with this, do you know? Does anyone know? Can with the cannabis dependence, yes, it can with longer time, yes, with cannabis medicine. Okay, I, I mean, have you discovered? Has that been a problem with any of your patients so far? So far, it it has not. I mean, so far, although there is no straw, I mean, there is still it's an unlicensed medicine for for pain. Uh, but I have been prescribing medicine, cannabis and medicine for pain pa patients now, and a lot of them more patients quite a, a huge number of my patients or they, they have helped with with pain and anxiety and sleep but none of them yet came back and they said oh i have i've been dependent on them on medicine cannabis i haven't seen that yet okay okay this is good news all right but, uh, as I just to interrupt, I mean, medicine cannabis is like any other cannabis. It has side effects. So every every medicine has side effects. Even medicine and cannabis has side effects. So one of them, one of the long term side effect is the dependency. You dependent on on the on the medicine and cannabis. Okay. All right. Well, we might come back to that because that's that's an important uh, issue. But specifically, I want to talk about children and, and, and mums and how these kind of drugs uh, can help. So, H Hannah, you, you have great experience of this with your, your son, Alfie, and um, the drugs helped him with epilepsy. Can you sort of just tell us uh, a little bit about how essentially these sorts of drugs helped your son, but not just your son, your whole family to kind of live a, a normal life again? Yeah, um, so before Alfie used medicinal cannabis, um, he was having up to 150 seizures a week um, in a cluster form. So he has a condition called PCDH19, which comes um, produces seizures in clusters rather than every day. So he'd have very violent clusters of seizures every week, always requiring an ambulance, always requiring a huge amount of intravenous medication to stop the seizures, um, including steroids, which are very damaging to the body and cause very severe side effects. He was having What's a cluster? Um, in 2016 up to 20. A, a well, this basically just means very severe seizures in a in a cluster. So you have some epilepsies where children will have seizures every day, or people will have seizures every day, but they will never require hospitalisation. So there are some things like absent seizures, for example, you can have hundreds of absent seizures a day, but still never require hospitalisation. Oh. With Alfie, he has very severe tonic chronic seizures, which stop you breathing. And um, he would have back-to-back -back seizures like that um, every week until until the steroids, which is what work for him, stopped. But before uh, stopped the seizures, but the steroids can take up to two or three days to work. So in that time, he would have to have intravenous midazolam, intravenous phenobarbital, intravenous lorazepam, loads and loads of very very sedating anti-epileptic medications to calm his brain down while the steroids would work. So he was having a huge amount of drugs and up to 25 doses of methylprednisolone a month, which is um, a lot of steroids. So and how old was he while this was going on? Well, he started having seizures at eight months old. Um, he was having clusters of seizures every eight months until he was four. 
And then his seizures got a lot worse and they came every three weeks at four. And then by the time he was five, they were coming every week. So every week we were basically in hospital dealing with that very severe medical emergency where he would be stopping breathing regularly. And that was very frightening as parents to deal with. Um, and then um, when we got home, when his seizures did stop, we were dealing with very violent, aggressive behaviour, tears, screaming, crying. You know, he was in a right state because of all the drugs he was on, but also all the seizures he'd had. And he was being weaned off these drugs very quickly, obviously, because they were coming out of his system. So he had absolutely no quality of life at all. And as his mother and being a full time carer, my partner was working full time to try and keep paying our mortgage. I it was left to me to look after him a lot of the time. And that was very, very debilitating on my quality of life as well. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can only imagine. I mean, I'm, I'm a parent myself and, you know, and when your child is ill, it's just awful. So, you know, you, you had that to the power of 10, really. So, but then you, you, you found some help. Yeah, it's very, it's very difficult. Yeah, it's very difficult dealing with a child or anyone that you love more than anything in the world, but they're very violent towards you and very aggressive because your natural human reaction is to protect yourself from harm. But when it's your child doing you harm, then that's very, very, very difficult to deal with. And sadly, we didn't have a huge amount of support other than our family. So we were very lucky that we had family supporting us, but it was we were very, I feel very extremely let down, to be honest, by where, you know, the people that should have been helping us more. But that, you know, that's what sort of drove me to trying to find help for my son, because we were being told that he may pass away because of the life that he was having. And I felt that as his, you know, as his parents, we felt that if he did pass away, we needed to know in our hearts that we'd done everything we could to save him from having the life that he was living. So that's what inspired us to do um research I mean th this didn't come from our clinicians because as um Sally has said you know medicinal cannabis isn't understood by doctors and that's not me being rude about doctors it's it's the fact they didn't they don't understand medicinal cannabis or the endocannabinoid and so it came from me I had to do the research and I learned a lot about the endocannabinoid system and how it can help um, how cannabis can help epilepsy I spoke to lots of families all over the world who were using cannabis with their children very effectively it you know it's very important to say it's not cure it doesn't cure you but what it does do is reduce seizures can stop them but also if they don't stop them it just can reduce seizures which in turn gives a much better quality of life to the patient and that in turn also then gives a much better quality of life to the family which with chronic illness is what you need to, to aspire to. It's not about curing people. It's about giving them quality of life with a chronic illness. So you, you did all this uh, without any med medical background at all. You, you became a very fast learner. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I would never profess to know anything uh, as doctors do, but I, I, I think with the, the invention of the internet, it does give patients the ability and their parents to understand a lot more than we have done before. And, and that's positive. And I'm very lucky that Alfie's doctors <clears throat> have always worked with me to do what's best for Alfie. And, and I know that's not the experience of many other, you know, some patients don't get that from their doctors, sadly, but we are very lucky with very supportive doctors around Alfie. And that's why we've achieved so much for him because of yeah. those supportive people around him. Sally, you wanted to say something, I interrupted you. 
No, no, nothing. I just I agree with Hannah that uh, that you don't and well done, Hannah, for all of this actually. And the other thing is that we with I mean cannabis medicine cannabis in my field. I am not a I'm not a neurologist, so I can't I can't say anything about uh, epilepsy. But I I agree with Hannah that that medicinal cannabis is not a cure; it's just to relieve the symptoms to give a better better quality of life for the patient themselves and the family around them. So it's not it's not a cure, yes. But it's symptoms to relieve the symptoms is a very big deal for patients suffering from chronic pain or epilepsy or the family or this is also a big step because I have a lot of patients. They said I just want a, a quality of life. The pain is, is is impossible to live with. So it's not curing the, the pain as a chronic pain. I cannot cure the pain. I just can't relieve the symptoms. And for my patients, this is a very big thing for them that they want a life. They don't have a quality of life. It's not sure. just the quality of patient themselves but also for the for the people around them and the family so so hannah let me ask a question considering you're not a medical person it might be a bit unfair but did did you kind of find out uh in a such that you can explain in a simple way what this medicine actually does how it actually helps alfie and other people with epilepsy mm. well my yeah my understanding of the endocannabinoid system as sally has said is that it's um, it's an overarching receptor system of your dopamine, your serotonin receptor. So it's, it's an overarching receptor system in charge of homeostasis. So homeostasis is the balance of your body, which is why you see receptors in your brain, your immune system, um, all over your body. And we produce what are called um, endocannabinoids. So we already produce our own cannabinoids called anandamide and 2-AG. And there's probably others that we produce. And those endocannabinoids help to balance your uh, your body, basically put your body into homeostasis. And if you're not producing enough of those, or if you need more, again, we don't un we don't understand whether how these conditions like epilepsy and pain, etc., interlink in the endocannabinoid system. It may be preventative, but it also may be that you're not producing enough of these um, bodily endocannabinoids, which may be that mean that your body is out of sync and out of function. So when you end when you add in what are called phytocannabinoids, which is what you get from the plant, they help to boost your endocannabinoid system, basically. And we know with Alfie that the only way his seizures are stopped is through steroids, which reduce inflammation of the immune system. So as far as I know, in my layman's terms, by adding phytocannabinoids in, it probably helps to balance that inflammatory immune response that we're seeing in his body. But I don't know. And that research does need to be done to, to really understand what these phytocannabinoids are doing in our bodies with these particular conditions. But what I feel really strongly um, about is that that's going to take many many years to understand that that as as Sally said there's hundreds of, of cannabinoids within the plant there's lots of things called terpenes that give it its smell flavonoids that give it its taste we know that these all have medicinal properties <clears throat> but it could take hundreds if not thousands of years if we're going to randomize control trial every compound in the plant and that will stop the the, the treatment of, pe of patients with chronic illness so I believe firmly that we should be prescribing to people and learning through real world evidence and observational data to make sure that we can see the safety profile of it, but also ensure that we're not preventing patients from being treated. And at the moment, sadly, that is what's happening in the NHS. People are not getting access in the NHS 
because of the lack of what's deemed as gold standard data, which is why it's all private at the moment. But it's so I'm, sad, and that's why. I'm, I'm sure there are many drugs that are prescribed that we don't know exactly how they work. You know, forget well, exactly. cannabis. You know, so yeah. it seems a bit unfair to sing, single cannabis out. Yeah, I quite so, agree with you, Mike. And actually, you're right. There's 73 um, medications prescribed on the NHS at the moment that have no randomised control trials. They're just prescribed through what's called historical data or anecdote. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. And uh, anti-epileptics as well. We don't actually understand the pathway of a lot of their mechanisms. They just we know that they work on certain channels and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. So you're absolutely right. And cannabis has been singled out as this sort of thing that we have to know everything about before we prescribe and I think that's incredibly unfair on patients does seem unfair right so what, what's the situation now as far as getting these drugs for Alfie on the NHS well Did Alfie's you... had an NHS prescription for three years on the NHS right. and it's funded by the NHS yeah but there's only three prescriptions for whole plant cannabis on the NHS and have only been for the last three years which is why we it, it's it's basically there's it's completely blocked access on the NHS because of this lack of perceived evidence which means that the NHS will not commission it i.e give money towards funding it which is why it's private which is very very sad for people who are not able to afford to to pay for it sure and is it as as far as the NHS goes is it a crazily expensive drug you know because some things on the NHS you know you hear stories of you know it costs thousands of pounds a week to keep people alive this sort of thing does it fall into that sort of category i think maybe i don't know about hannah i mean i think maybe lack as hannah said lack of evidence and and research and it's not according and it's not cost effective for patients that's why it's like and then it's expensive if you go it privately it is an expensive uh, medication uh, uh, private if you if you patients chronic pain patient prescribed uh, privately yes but compared to the yeah, benefit yeah, I, I think it's um, for children with epilepsy, it's a lot cheaper. If you think about children with refractory epilepsy, many of them spend a lot of time in hospital. When Alfie, when we were trying to get Alfie's license in 2018, we did a cost analysis. And actually, we're, we're now saving the NHS nearly £100,000 a year by him not going into hospital. And if you think about that, there's 37,000 children in the UK with refractory epilepsy, that could be going to the millions if those children yeah. are able to access this product. But I think also, sadly, NICE will look at products of their cost effectiveness. And what actually I believe needs to happen is we need to have a proper health economic study, which actually brings in quality of life. And, the, you know, for example, the ability for me to go back to work and pay tax. Yeah that's a benefit to society and actually that's not thought about all they think about is how much does this cost can we afford it can the NHS afford it actually we need to be thinking about the social impact of not allowing these medicines to be available to people with pain for example who may be able to then go back to work because they're not in chronic pain all the time that matters but it's not being thought about at the moment and that I think that's incredibly sad right yes you've convinced me sorry go ahead Sally yeah, I agree with Hannah that like in pain, I'm talking always about pain because I'm a pain specialist for pain is as she 
uh, totally 100% agree. It's not about just you treat patient in NHS and it's cost effective. As you treat them psychosocial, it means they, they are not going to work, they are, they're missing work. So this is all, all money uh, uh, gone, basically. And uh, and a lot of my, my chronic pain patients, they can't go to work because they are in, in chronic pain. So you are, it's like a, it's like a vicious circus. There's, they never go to work and they go to the hospital and okay, you give them something, they go back. So there is not a cure. And this medicine we're taking is, is not curing pain. Sometimes they relieve the symptom, but they're still unable to, to go to work. And the, and the, and the, and the, the psychological impact on these patients. So patient, chronic pain patients, they, they don't just suffer from pain, they suffer from an anxiety, depression, and, and, and everything with it, because it's, it's a very bad to have chronic pain 24-7. And psychologically, they will become, it's, it's have a severe impact on them psychologically. And their families, everybody. And the family, of course, yes. And the family, and as, as as Hannah, she was as she was the uh, full time carer, so she didn't go to work. She so so she less money coming to the family. So also all of this, it's not just it's all everything. It's everything with it. Yes. Yeah. All right. So Hannah, from those statistics and your your story, I've got to say you you've persuaded me. Now, I, I think you, you, you are trying to persuade everyone, aren't you, about the value of these drugs and how they should be available. What, what, what can we do to help? Or what, tell us about what, you're, what, what the work that you're doing now, trying to um, get this uh, everyone on board. Well, um, yeah, it's three years nearly since the law changed. So I, I continue to campaign. I continue to campaign on behalf of patients who don't have the voice uh, or don't have the ability to, who are looking after children 24-7. I understand what that's like. I don't want any family to be going through that in this country unless they have to. Um, so I continue to campaign. I continue to engage you with government about how they can make it better and how they can ensure that there is access on the NHS to people. Um, at the moment, we have a very terrible situation where people are paying privately. For children with epilepsy, they need a huge amount of the drug, so up to £2,000 sometimes a month um, for their prescriptions, which is you know, grossly unacceptable for people who are already very vulnerable and have very vulnerable families. So I continue to do that. I also work with the um, Medical Cannabis Clinician Society to help run that because I feel very strongly that education of doctors and allied health workers is where we're going to see the biggest change. Like people like Sally, who are incredibly brave and stand up and say, this is the right thing to do. And this is what I believe I, I need to give access to my patients to. I think that is so commendable because there's many doctors I know sitting not doing this because they're too frightened to or they don't want to be put their head above the parapet pit. So I think these pioneers in the clinician, you know, in the doctor's world are, are amazing. And I, you know, I, I really am very grateful to Sally and her colleagues for standing up and doing the right thing by her patients. And that's what I continue to try and support doctors and allied health workers in you know learning about this wonderful plant and how it can help people and actually looking at the evidence we have an evidence base on our website for example there is a huge amount of evidence of safety it may not be randomized control evidence but there's a lot of good evidence to show safety in this plant for for conditions and you know i continue to do as much as i can to get the word out and you know that's what wow. we'll do all of us it, between us we'll all do that until, it, until it's better for patients and if people are listening to this and thinking, right, I would like to get involved and help Anna um, with, I don't know, donating money to the cause or their time or their expertise, what can they do? Is there, 
Can well, they contact you? Yeah, if they're a doctor or an allied health worker, I'd urge them to join the um, Medical Cannabis Clinician Society, which is ukmccs.org. Um, there, there's a huge amount of education and peer support, which is, I think, is really, really important for doctors who are starting out. Um, if um, a member of the public, I would urge you to write to your MP and, uh, and tell them um, that you are shocked that three years after the law changed that there's still no access on the NHS to these medicines. And I think it's really important the public make their voice heard on this. Um, and, and that's the best way. And talking to, you know, reducing the stigma. If people are prescribed medicinal cannabis, they are talking to their families, they're talking to their employers. You know, we need to reduce the stigma of using these medicines because that's a big, a big barrier as well. Yeah. Let, well, let, let's hit some of that right now. Let, let's just address, can we address this myth that these medicines make you high? Because, you know, this, this <laughs> doctors are not going to give uh, medicines or anything to their patients to, to make them high um so help help us just kind of stop that right now yeah i mean i just back to hannah yes i, I think lack of knowledge from the doctors actually and uh, and uh, the and the and the stigma around prescribing cannabis makes doctors some of them so they don't want to be involved in 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 prescribing and i had a patient that um, when i prescribed her cannabis it was for her fibromyalgia actually and she she went and told her 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 her, her um, employer that i am using cannabis and she was so brave telling them that i'm using medicinal cannabis and they were very very they were very okay with it and they accepted her and she she told her that i am using cannabis and because it's helping me with my with helping with my symptoms so some some of them they will starting to accept can medicinal cannabis as part of medicine to treat pain and uh, some of the doctors, they still see it as, as maybe, as I said, lack of their knowledge and the stigma that they are not prescribing cannabis. And uh, yes, this is what okay. making high maybe maybe the, the as I said as we said Hannah that the component of the cannabis plant the THC can make you sometimes the side effects if, if of, uh, can make you high. But the medicinal cannabis the difference between the medicinal cannabis and the street cannabis the medicinal cannabis is more well controlled and you know what you are giving to your your patient. So if I give a patient chronic for chronic pain I know what I'm what I'm giving him THC him or her THC or CBD and this the side effects of this cannabis is much lower than the cannabis used to you illegally you buy it from the street and you know what are you taking so it might make you make you high but the the, um, the the percentage is very low because we know what we are giving so the the the, con the, the concentration of these two components the main component for chronic pain you know what you are giving and you're controlling it and you're making a, a, a follow-up with the patients Good, right. Yes. So you, you, you've given us a lot of information, but people, if people want to know more and have more questions to ask, um, there's a webinar which is approaching very shortly, uh, which will go into more of this. Uh, can you please give us the details of when that is? Um, yeah, so th the 3rd of August, um, Sally and I will be talking about women, mental health and medical cannabis on a webinar, um, which is supported by Integrate Clinics and the Cannabis Health magazine. How can people find out or log on to that? that the details will be on Eventbrite, but also on the social media pages of Integre Clinics and the Cannabis Health magazine. Excellent. All right. So, look, Sally and Hannah, thank you so much uh, for chatting about this. Not only very interesting, but I can't help thinking this is going to help a lot of people. So many thanks. Hopefully. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.
think that was one of the most informative pieces I've been lucky enough to do yet on the Relax Back UK show. So many thanks to my guests, Dr. Sally Gazella and Hannah Deacon. I very much hope that I can arrange another meetup with them for an update on how it's going, uh, but we'll have to see about that. The next item is all about food, and I found myself in a really lovely location. Right, I am in a fabulous restaurant to meet my guest this week, and the restaurant is called Cha and Nasta, and uh, so really I'm her guest actually today. I'm, I'm, I'm in her place, and uh, the owner, on, owner and operator of Cha and Nasta is Sam. So Sam, thank you very much uh, for joining us, and what Chara Nasta, what's it all about? What does it mean actually to start off with? So uh, thank you for having me on the show. Um, char is tea, so it's a basic ba- our Bangladeshi cup of that, tea. That much on you. <laughs> and Nasta basically means um, it could be breakfast, lunch, snacks. It's all different types of small street food. Um, so that's what it means. So tea and snacks basically. Okay. So what I've noticed when I've walked past and actually right. been in as a as a paying customer buying your stuff which i love by the way is that the food that you offer is actually it's pretty different it's not like other indian restaurants at all so what what kind of brought brought it about and, and have you really thought this is going to be different um 100 so you're absolutely right it's not like the other indian restaurants you have because i think when the indian restaurants have come back they've kind of catered towards the westernized society um, we have Bangladeshi cuisine is completely different. We have kept it as we eat it at home. Um, the only difference you will find with our cooking is that the heat, like chilli factor of it. So we've dumbed that down. But if you can take spice, let us know and we will add it in. And then, you know, that we can we can change that around. Um, main difference is we just we don't use any creams. We don't use any kind of yogurts or anything in our cooking. It is pure spices and the sauce is made like, with water, basically. So from that point of view it's kind of healthier than a lot of other Indian restaurants because I mean I, I go to Indian restaurants I love Indian food my wife's family is from Bombay you know I eat a lot of Indian food but a lot of it ain't that healthy is the impression I get yours is a bit different you think yes because like I said we're not using cream so it is healthier is it the healthiest probably not but um, it is definitely healthier because the fat content we're looking at is the oil that we're using and probably what you get from chicken or meat in itself. And for a treat once in a while, it's absolutely fine, yeah. So you started this restaurant pretty much at the worst possible time to start practically any business, just at the start of lockdown. So you you must have felt that there was a a real appetite uh, for something a bit different. Uh, 100%. Um, look, if we can survive COVID, then hopefully we can survive the rest. And yes, it couldn't be a worse time. But just looking around, um, there's nothing like this in not just St Albans. There's nothing like this in Hertfordshire. Um, and there, it's it was a niche market that we went into. And the reason we kind of do, we have a real passion for our food. Like Bangladeshi's um, food is kind of stamped into us and um we love to host we're always you know before covid we were hosting every single week the whole family used to get together and we show our love through food and what brilliant way to do this to the whole St Albans community because I was born and bred here is to do the same thing um for the community and and open this place up so we thought why not so let let, let me ask is so you it was a bit of a gamble because it's your offering is quite different to other 
Indian restaurants. But do you think during the COVID time that people were kind of looking for something different, to happy to make a bit of a gamble on something new to eat? Or do you think people were quite sort of conservative and hunkering down and liking what they know kind of thing? Well, my thought is, I think everyone during COVID either turned turn to a ba- becoming a baker at home. <laughs> there was a lot of that, wasn't yeah, exactly. there? Exactly. A lot of sourdough. God. Actually, my my yeah. So my children don't like sourdough. I'm 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 not particularly in, into you. You like it, do you? All right. But yeah, there was a lot of talk about baking and sourdough and people trying stuff but at home mainly. Yeah, no, I think people are trying stuff at home and, and I think people are experimenting and trying different things. Like when I was in, during lockdown, I was trying different, I was making different cuisines for my family. So I think people were a lot open, more open to um, trying different things. And yes, it was a gamble. However, I know that St. Albans has loads of different Indian restaurants here. Um, so we are... I don't want to say providing the same, but providing the same kind of thing, but completely different. So there definitely was an appetite to try different things, especially street food. Um, that's a big thing at the minute. So let me ask you, last time I came here, I saw that there was a rickshaw. Actually, is it still here? Have yes, you got a rickshaw? Okay. I, yeah, all right. So is that part of your future plan to, you know, maybe deliver food? Yeah, definitely. I'll on the rickshaw? On the rickshaw, hopefully. I will be um, looking to deliver some food locally. Um, I couldn't imagine me driving up Hollywell, cycling up Hollywell Hill with that. And um, ultimately... I've ridden the rickshaw. I've driven a rickshaw. I know it's pretty hard work. Yeah. And if, if, you're, you know, if you've got people at the other end who have ordered food and they want it in the next 20 minutes or something, you, you, you're going to work up some muscles. Oh, 100%. We are going to work out some muscles, but that's the plan. However, we are looking at buying a tuk-tuk. So ultimately, we want to start delivering in our tuk-tuks and possibly offer a pick-up and pick-up service from your house to the restaurant. Um, it's in process, so I don't know when it's going to come about, but hopefully it will come about soon. Right. Um, so presumably, over the last year, your business has been changing as sort of the COVID situation has has changed um and you've got space to invite people in you are inviting people in you're, you're hoping to do that more what's, what's i mean what, actually i don't even really know the current rules or restaurant situation um so yeah we can as you know we can invite people in to the restaurant now so maximum group of six um we've spaced our tables and chairs out quite spaciously so more than two meter rule because it's quite small We've got bifold doors, um, open windows, so it's very well ventilated. And when you know, when we have too many people in here, we've also got heating inside, so it shouldn't be too cold during the winter season. I know we're in, you know, summer at the minute, and there's some space on the outside as well. So, um, no. No, it, it makes a very nice situation, and you know, especially if you've, if you've know, done your shopping in St Albans Market, it's a kind of busy place. It's a perfect place to breeze into. For a bit of a breather so actually are you finding that are you getting shoppers or are you getting people who are coming here as a meal destination um i think a mixture of both people still are discovering us um, we haven't marketed this place whatsoever um we're very blessed that our customers have posted about us on facebook instagram um, you know all the social media aspects and Google and that's how our customers have been driving into us um, 
so again really blessed with that side of things and we've got a mixture of both customers coming in it's nice because what I tried to create here is once town is extremely busy as you said but once you come through our gates I wanted that feeling of you're being transported into something completely different um, and from the feedback from customers that's what they're feeling so when they come and sit in a little tinned shack um, they do feel like they're somewhere completely different in a different location so that's brilliant that I can bring that vibe of what I imagined in my head I want to just go back to some of the issues or difficulties you had of sort of setting up a business during COVID time because you know it's very brave to do uh, but in some respects you know everything was changing everywhere certainly in the restaurant business so seeing as everything was changing everything was up for grabs so maybe it was a good time to start but what did you find hardest um that's probably a really horrible unfair question yeah. which i've just dumped on you but no i think definitely adapting to the covid situation was hard, the, the hardest thing but considering we started during covid we had no choice so it was easier in some aspects so we had to start off as a complete takeaway yeah um, which is fine, we catered towards it, and if you have a look at the dubbers and everything that we do the takeaway in, perfect. Um, and everything else, once we were able to invite people in, actually it was, it was a smooth transition, because we thought everything out, um, and it's just nice to have everyone, everyone in. So it was hard in some aspects because of the rules and regulations, it was very frustrating because we were building this place as well, because right. we couldn't have anyone sit in. Um, I think we weren't having enough drive of customers, but now people are coming in, it's all kind of settled. Yes, we're still in COVID, but all the precautions are being put into place. So it's, it's, it's picking up. Yeah, good. So you spoke a little bit about the future already with the rickshaw deliveries and the tuk-tuk. That, sound, that sounds very exciting. Actually, I know what a tuk-tuk is. Just explain to the listeners, because they might not know what a tuk-tuk is. So tuk-tuk is like a, how do you explain, a motorised um, three-wheel vehicle. Motorised rickshaw. Yeah, motorised rickshaw, in other words. Um, so, yeah. You can get a lot of food on one of those. Yeah. And you can whiz around a lot of St Albans. Oh, I hope so. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so really, what I was leading up to is, are you, are you confident of the future and how do you, how do you see the, this particular restaurant going? Or how do you want it to go? I am very confident in the future. Um, it's gone beyond what I could have imagined when I first started up. Um, I, had my, I guess I've put my expectations quite low, but it's gone really well. Um, I do look to expand, not very quickly whatsoever, because I'll kind of want to, this is our home. So we want everything to go smoothly here before I look into buying anything else. Um, again, we'll choose our location quite carefully. We don't want to just open anywhere and everywhere, um, but we will slowly and organically, we would like to grow. But it's a family run business, so that's very important to us. and hopefully another member of a family will be in the other one to give it the family aspect to it all right so look, if people are listening to this and thinking hmm this sounds nice i'd like to and check out some of that food how can they find out where you are get hold of you you've got a website what's the location all that stuff so the website's coming uh you can find us on instagram at char nasta um on facebook and 
quickest way to explain where we are is we're 14 Hatfield Road, but if you know where the Auburn School is or Thompson's or formerly known as Darcy's, we're literally a couple of doors away or opposite Auburn School. Excellent. All right. I hope you do very well. I'm really impressed with the place. I've, I've loved the food I've had here and it just has a nice feel about it. So Sam, thanks very much for chatting. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to my guests on this week's show. And they were Dr. Sally Gazella and Hannah Deacon talking about medicines derived from the cannabis plant. And Sam telling us about her fantastic restaurant serving healthy Indian food. And of course, thank you to you for listening. Thank you for listening and please do join us again next time.